Welcome to Beyond the Text and our special series From Academy to Arena. Join me as we explore how political ideas collide with real-world political battles. Each episode unravels the complexities of translating theory into impactful change. Get ready for a captivating journey into the pulse of political thought. This is Beyond the Text, where ideas come to life. Welcome to Beyond the Text, Academy to Arena, where we unravel the threads of history to understand how ideas shape the world we inhabit today. In this episode, we embark on a journey through the Enlightenment period, probing the profound impact of reason and rationality on our contemporary society. Our focus revolves around a critical examination of the writings of two Enlightenment giants, John Locke and Immanuel Kant. While the Enlightenment heralded an era of liberation from entrenched religious beliefs, our exploration reveals a nuanced narrative. We question whether the Enlightenment's emphasis on reason truly fostered universal ideals or inadvertently perpetuated exclusions and inequalities. Furthermore, we dissect the transformation of knowledge production during this period, from communal understanding to mechanisms of control and order. Delving into the ethical dimensions, we uncover how reason empowers individuals with the autonomy to navigate moral landscapes liberated from the constraints of religious doctrines. Join us as we traverse the corridors of history and illuminate the enduring relevance of Enlightenment ideals in our contemporary world. Through introspection and critical analysis, we unveil the intricate interplay between ideas and societal evolution, navigating the legacy of the Enlightenment with an eye toward understanding our present and shaping our future. Welcome to Beyond the Text, Academy to Arena, where the past converges with the present to illuminate the path forward. Did the Enlightenment become too rational and reliant on reason. During the period in between 1650 and 1850, the shape of intellectual discourse shifted dramatically. The old narratives of blind faith were being readdressed with reason and logic, empirical study of the world around. It could be said that society went from the Temple of Christ to the Temple of Reason, as Mozart coins in his Magic Flute. A vindication of the individual's agency was underway, but this shift toward a rational being could be said to be far too homogenising, linear and ultimately Western-orientated. Alternatively, it could be said to have not gone far enough when it comes to the rights of women. First of all, it may be argued that the Enlightenment's insistence on the rational and move toward human reason catalyzed empirical study to break from the falsehoods of human nature and epistemology. Therefore, posing the transition was needed, and not too extreme. In Locke's An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, he writes that it was the status quo of the 17th century within which he was writing to accept that men have native ideas. In context, religious concepts that were innate, such as Massa Piccati, raised by Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, Locke here was attempting to break from the tutelage of religious mores and concepts and reconstitute the epistemological structure to one based upon sensory data and reflection upon that evidence. 
He goes on to refer to the individual's mind as a white paper, void of all character, suggesting that agency to discovery and experience is the individual's choice, a posteriori, rather than the established view that men have in their minds several ideas, in essence, a priori. Moreover, through Locke's application of the Cartesian method of observing ourselves, he comes to his second premise, that we learn and develop our episteme through reflection, in which, by reason, there come to be ideas of these operations that we utilise when empirically investigating the world. Subsequently, it could be said that man's empirical investigation is applied reason, allowing us to discover and learn. Yet it could be argued that this new, universal and to some degree egalitarian notion of innate reason had not gone far enough. Peden pens a savage indictment of the notion of equality under Locke's reason, posing that universal ideals often excluded not only women, but others of different classes or cultures suggesting that although Locke was a catalyst for a more progressive view of rigorous investigation of our archaic, established mindsets, what is deemed objective in the essay is not necessarily accessible across all strata. In fact, for the fault of some of the change that Locke and other members of the Royal Society were conducting, she goes on to deconstruct the discursive change that happened between the medieval and Enlightenment ages, a form of Foucauldian analysis that suggests that the application of reason to uncovering knowledge changed the class of that knowledge. This shift was from a discursive exchange within the world of the medievals who looked for patterns to understand the world and what they could communally learn under God's eye to an abstract class of knowledge as a practice upon the world. This flip meant that knowledge was no longer a tool of shared understanding, but an attempt to rule and control the world and its ordering. Subsequently, it could be argued that it isn't that the Enlightenment became too reliant on reason, but the authority of knowledge was concentrated in the wrong places, disenfranchising many. Also, it could be said that when it comes to ethics, rationality is a release from the bondage of scripture that had dictated the moral code up until the Enlightenment. Although still deontological, Kant's categorical imperative was an appeal to reason in the face of Aquinas' natural law laid out in the Summa Theologica. Moreover, it was a safeguard against any move towards antinomianism that the anarchists and atheists of the era may inspire. In his work, The Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysics of Morals, Kant outlines the pivotal nature of reason in the assessment of the obligation moral agents have to the objective moral maxims that could be swayed under particular impulses, rendering the will to follow subjectively contingent. Therefore, he poses that a rational being, by principles of reason, should always conduct themselves as if what they were doing were consistent in all circumstances. Regardless of circumstantial impulse and emotion, reason will guide you to the all-encompassing directive that should guide one's actions. Furthermore, Kant adds another clause to this argument, that rational nature exists as an end in itself implying that each individual is an agent who should not be disregarded as anything lesser than an end, and certainly never as a mere means. 
This concept thereby enhances each man's negative freedom to be free from their rationality and ability to act being constrained by another's. This shows that reason and rationality break the chains of religious moral dictates and instead provide a slate for man to act freely and to comprehend the right way to act in situations by applying rationality rather than scripture. However, there is a fair post-structural critique of this argument raised by Newman, where he writes, along similar lines to Peden earlier, that morality has become abstracted to the level of Max Stirner's spooks. Therefore, he argues that any morality, in the broad sense, is just as binding to the agent as religious doctrine, rendering it a discursively closed fiction that denies difference and plurality. He also pens a line in reference to Foucault's madness and civilization, arguing that universal forms of morality and rationality simply seek a form of epistemological domination, in particular excluding those regarded as irrational or mad. Instead, there is a need to disrupt the serene domination of good over evil that is perpetuated from the temple of Christ to the temple of reason. This shows that although rationality provides a grounding for the moral law, this maxim of applied reason can be far too authoritarian in dictating the agent's action and manners. said that the Enlightenment's reliance on reason went too far. An example of this can be seen in Kant's perpetual peace, in which he lays the groundwork for a rational, homogenising and rather patronising international structure. He writes that to attain an international state of harmony, all nations across the globe must be founded upon a civil constitution because of the same threats and evils which compelled individuals to enter the social state in the first place, to avoid a deterioration into anarchy. This is a fair argument on the face of it, and to secure a contented diplomatic situation on all sides, each component nation needs to be rooted in the liberty and naturally subsequent democracy of a constitution. However, Kant goes on to talk of consulting the so-called tribunal of reason to develop failing states and steer them away from the anarchic liberty of savages, implying the artificial political superiority of the developed Western nations to those of the savage Orient. This elitist perspective shrouds itself in a facade of altruism, but serves to imply that any other form of governance and statehood is no good homogenizing all nations under a Western umbrella. Moreover, this supports the point that the reliance on reason had gone far too far, that the application of reason would lead each country to come to their senses and follow a Western developmental trajectory, since it was the rational way to be. A post-colonial critique of Kant is that of Zachariades, who argues that the incessant strive towards reason in a nation's development towards modernity and betterment, 
also then brought out a dark side that was often linked to imperialism and colonialism. This supports the point, as when Kant describes people of the Orient as savages who have no understanding of the world and abstract concepts, who therefore need to be rationalised in the Western way, he serves to perpetuate an artificial subordination of different cultures. The telos of improving the human stock in Kant's eyes was driven by reason, but underscored how liberal peacebuilding is implicitly imperialist and racist. This serves to show how the rational path toward perpetual peace was far too reliant on reason and homogenising, afraid to take in difference and cultural relativity. Finally, it could be argued that the Enlightenment's fallback on rationality as a grounding point was too overreaching, especially when one looks to critique the arts. When Diderot comments in the essay on the reign of Claudius and Nero, on the fact that hundreds had made an apology for the arts and sciences prior to Rousseau, he critiques the Genevans' reiteration of a popular argument, was at the same time unintentionally reinforcing its poignance. In the first discourse, Rousseau argued that as society had begun to introspect man with the gaze of the rational and through the schools of progressivism, it had lost sight of the nature of man and his mores. He writes of a vile and deceitful uniformity that reigns in our mores, posing that the pilgrimage to the Temple of Reason had solely served to make all cast in the same mould. In a similar fashion to Kant after him, Rousseau, in part two of the discourse, goes on to highlight the importance of art as an exemplar of man, his morals and independence. However, he argues that the reasoning of the Age of Enlightenment has merely left the arts in subjection to the gaze of the socially acceptable palette of the time. He exalts that rather than pursuing one's own desire and passion, every artist wants to be applauded, thereby stifling venture and change, rather playing to the rational of what is deemed right in situ, and that men have sacrificed their taste to the tyrants of their liberty. This reinforces the idea that reason had taken the place of autonomy in the Enlightenment man, both constructing and conducting his moral compass and artistic endeavours, rendering society a homogenised mass of conformity. Yet for women, Rousseau is often regarded as an example of male despotism, and it could be argued that the reach of reason hadn't in fact gone far enough here. Wollstonecraft pens a savage indictment of the Genevan, her educational inspiration, in the Vindication of the Rights of Women of 1792, where she poses that the works of Emile and the Second Discourse are inconsistent. This is on the grounds that Rousseau confuses civil and savage man between his text on education and on inequality, creating a false dichotomy between the two sexes. It was not feasible that Rousseau could both hold the female sex in a state of pity and bordering on contempt, at the same time as his profound exaltation of the goodness of man as a whole. With the irrational here being rendered void between the two texts, it could be argued that the span of reason had not in fact gone far enough across all the cleavages of society to allow opportunity in an allegedly enlightened time. In his On the Art of Poetry... Horace writes, we are deceived by the appearance of right. When we look at the impact of the Enlightenment today, it could be said 
but it was too reliant on reason and rationality in its insistence on the right way of thinking. A problem that philosophy and intellectual history has time and time again failed to address is not what is right, but if there is a system of right and wrong in its binary form whatsoever, in epistemology, ethics, etc. It is a much more multipolar notion than the traditional conception of deeming a concept right or rational or wrong irrational. Therefore, it could be argued that the Enlightenment wasn't too rational, as it provided a platform to break away from the blinding faith of epistemology prior to Locke and his empirical and rational study. Plus, in ethics, Kant provided a framework for a logical moral code that wasn't rooted in scripture or abstract, consequential, utilitarian concepts. Yet, with the homogenising tendency of Kant's international relations and Rousseau's condemnation of the state of the arts and sciences, with the stifling tendency of society to mould itself in a caste that looks identical from one to another along rational ground, it does seem that the Enlightenment was too rooted in its temple of reason, with very few valid pilgrims. Thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey through the corridors of history and the arenas of contemporary thought. As we draw to a close, let us carry forward the lessons learned from the Enlightenment period, recognising the enduring relevance of reason, rationality and critical inquiry in shaping our world. Through introspection and engagement, may we navigate the complexities of our time with wisdom and empathy, mindful of the past, as we chart a course toward a brighter, more enlightened future. Join us next time on Beyond the Text Academy to Arena as we continue to explore the profound impact of ideas on the world we inhabit. Until next time, keep questioning, keep learning, and keep discovering the intricate intellectual threads that lie beyond the text.